Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCourse subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. 
In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fed, fun, and functional categories. And today's guest, I am personally in awe of and humbled by the joy that she has brought to our own little Pack Dawson family. Today, we have on the one and only Angela N. McLeod, PhD, CCC, SLP. And as I'm the mama, and I'm okay with saying this, and I did double check with her too, this is our sweet little Boo Bears SLP. And y'all, this lady has helped us in so many ways with our Theodore, um, who before he met Dr. Angela, he called himself Dedador because he couldn't say Theodore. And his favorite thing to eat was titties because he couldn't say cookies. And when he asked you to sit with him, um, uh, because of that little lateral lisp that um, sit with me <laughs> did not sound like sit with me. And um, she even cleaned up his F for TR swap substitution. So that when he asked for a fire truck, it didn't sound like a fire truck. So haha, there's your last four-letter word joke of the day. But uh, uh, between Dr. Angela and her yuggy yadies, because um, Bear called all of the graduate student clinicians the lovely ladies, I, you know, yuggy yadies, and his amazing early interventionist, the Brants, and his um, godsend ENT, Dr. Garner, who has done several surgeries, and we have one more to go. Um, between all that, Bear has made tremendous progress. And it's not lost on me that this has been a collaborative team effort, and it's been ongoing for three and a half of his five and a half years to get him where he is. And that journey as a mama bear has been hard and scary and on a very deep level, incredibly frustrating to be an SLP and to not be able to help my own kid. And then Dr. Angela took me aside one day while I was observing a student clinician um, with um, Boo Bear and uh, it was through the closed loop TV. So we were watching her work with um, Bear and she said, Michelle, you have to be his mama and not his clinician. And it righted my world. It gave me permission to hang my clinical hat up and just let it go. It gave me permission to not drill, to celebrate, to not harp on each error pattern, but to gently cue and happy dance when he got it right. And y'all, there is so much more joy in our journey. 
Also, y'all, this amazing woman has managed to put up with me for all this time and overanalyzing him for several years. And she still likes me and still talks to me. <laughs> so like, what's up? Uh, now, I'm not sure how I pulled that miracle off, but we did. And here we are. So uh, earlier this year, as we were prepping for the Skisha convention, and I got to talk to her about it in passing, and then um, we got to talk more about it in depth at the convention, she made a comment about um, some myofascial coursework that she had just completed. And it piqued my curiosity, because even though I'd had it on my professional radar, some of the folks that I know that had um, taken the coursework had unfortunately misconstrued it as basically oral motor exercises on crack. And we know that those are non-evidence-based and it's had me on the fence. Truly, I have had misgivings, but here's a woman I admire and love. And if she did it and I have seen her skill set and her um, evidence-based work firsthand, then I needed to know more about it. So um, I managed to sweet talk her into coming on to clear the air about what it is and what it's not um, and so, yay. So here we are. So Dr. Angela woman, thank you for coming on. But, um, first and foremost, um, thank you for everything you have done for my little D to door. <laughs> Cause well, like, who? and I'm really, really hoping that he stays quiet for this hour. Um, <laughs> because he was so excited that I was talking to you, but I like withheld TV all day long and, um, they're presently watching angry birds too. And I'm hoping that that will be enough to, um, keep him entertained, but hi. <laughs> Hi, Michelle, and I want to thank you so much for your gracious introduction, as well as all the other comments. That was very kind of you. I, I'm just really at a loss for words as much talking as I do after all of that. But. Well, I, I, it's like an occupational hazard. I mean, we SLPs are supposed to be great communicators, but when it comes to like the end of the day, we're all befuddled at the end. So like... And I got to say, multisyllabic words are really hard for me on a good day. So I kind of think I might know where Bear gets it from, aside from all the hearing loss. <laughs> okay, but I'm serious. I have so many, I have so many different questions. And what my biggest fear, because of what's been misconstrued to me, and Aaron and I did um, the tethered oral tissue talk a couple, well, like several weeks ago. And we talked about like what the evidence says about like what the purpose of tethered tissue is. Like we're supposed to have um, frenulums and they do like anthropologically like serve a purpose. And then we looked at like some um, data that talks about like prevalency of um, um overdone surgeries versus necessary surgeries mm -hmm. and outcomes and blah, blah. And so we, we did all of that. But honestly, I have been put on the fence because I have seen so many people that have said, um, well, as soon as you're, you take this course, you'll understand that all the frenulums have to be cut. Everybody has a tongue tie. Everybody has a lip tie and they all have to be cut. And it was like flat out stated to me like that. And I'm like, that is wrong. And yeah. so like, I just, that's the baggage that I bring with it, but I know that you're not that person. Yeah. So we have so much myth busting to do. Oh yeah. Well, I'll just say that I think with any type of um, information that is put out there for a large set of individuals, um, there are um, possibilities of individual interpretation because we all are clinical scientists. We're all independent um, 
um, clinicians and making our own assessments. I, I do think that there's opportunity for some information to be um, misinterpreted or acted upon inappropriately. But for the most part, when it comes to the phrenectomy, we, we don't want to make any decisions based on visual um, dimensions only. Um, oh, wait. So you mean those Facebook pictures when they post yeah. on the Facebook pictures a static picture of a kid with their tongue up? We shouldn't all jump on and say, cut it, cut it, cut it. <laughs> right. Yeah, because everyone's yeah. anatomy is a little different. Um, I could look at five different clients, all who appear to have a short frenula, um, you know, based on what I see. But what we're concerned about is functionality. Is the frenulum capable of enabling proper range of motion for um, bolus manipulation, for chewing, for safe swallowing. Um, because as you know, infants can also be assessed for having these procedures. And um, in, my, in my practice, what I've always looked at is functionality. Um, yes. So that's the takeaway. And Thank you. And I think that's what's lost. I think everybody, I think big picture, we all want a quick fix because mm -hmm. it's easier. Trust mm -hmm. me, if there was a pill that I could take that had zero side effects and I just magically woke up tomorrow about 10 pounds, like toner, leaner, firmer, I'd give it serious consideration, quick fix, but that's not the case. Right. So yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So what is an orofacial myofunctional disorder and okay. then what is an orofacial myologist okay <laughs> okay because <laughs> like that's, that's confusing terminology <laughs> that's a two-part question so first <laughs> i'll address the definition of an orofacial myofunctional disorder um i will say that the terminology referring to this type of disorder can vary depending on where you read about this type of disorder. Um, okay. What do you mean, or, where do you read? Like within like if you SLP were Google, literature? Yes, SLP literature, orthodontic and dental profession literature. Um, if you were to do a Google search, depending on how long ago the information was published, you'll also see some differences. But some possible terms that refer to the same thing are um, simply a... And when I say simply, not saying that the disorder is simple, but without the orofacial um, label, myofunctional disorders. I don't know if you've ever heard just myofunctional disorders apart from the word orofacial, but that's, yes. that's referring to the same thing. Um, you may have seen or heard oral muscle imbalance dysfunction. No. Okay. Well, that's another term and maybe some of the older literature and then i'm uh -huh. i'm certain you have heard of tongue thrust <laughs> this i am familiar with <laughs> okay. so essentially what happens with um tongue thrust it is a um a type of skill that falls within the larger umbrella of um or not skill a type of disorder that falls within the larger umbrella of oral facial myofunctional disorders so some people use them synonymously. In other words, they're saying tongue thrust within itself refers to um, oral facial myofunctional disorders. 
but because oral facial myofunctional disorders is a broadest, broader set of um, possible disorders, tongue thrust is only one part of that. Okay. And I'll elaborate a bit. But um, if you want to think about the morphology of the words, oro refers to the mouth, facial re refers to the face, myo refers to muscles, and functional refers to how things work. So, mm -hmm. so essentially, any type of oral facial myofunctional disorder could potentially impede or interfere with the normal growth and development of the oral muscles, as well as the bones of the face and the mouth. So any disruption of any of those features could potentially be classified um, as an oral facial myofunctional disorder. So think of how we use the muscles for chewing, how we use um, the muscles for eating, um, even for breathing. Um, and obviously for talking um, and swallowing. So the takeaway is that it's a broad label that refers to a lot of different potential problems. And the way to figure out what features need to be addressed or what impairments need to be addressed would be to engage the client in evaluation procedures to investigate all of those things. Okay. So I went to a class at ASHA two years ago. Mm -hmm. We were at LA. It mm -hmm. was LA. So yeah. Linda D'Afrino. De oh my God, I'm butchering it. Linda D. She's got purple hair and gray hair and she's like a powerhouse. It was my first class, but it was just a super brief overview and that's where I first got curious about it and she was talking about how they even have different ICD-10 codes mm -hmm. they do. are there different CPT codes as well or is it the same CPT codes that it's, SLPs use it's the same CPT codes but the different um, I, there could be different ICD-10s depending on what you're addressing for example think about before you say sparked an interest in this area. If you were to engage a client in um, an evaluation or therapy for anything within your scope, you would have one ICD-10 for whatever you identified with language or a different mm -hmm. one that you identified for speech sounds or a different one that you identified for dysphagia. It's no different than, um, than that. Essentially, not every client, for example, is going to have a tongue thrust. But, mm -hmm. you know, there could be some other things that fall under the range of skills that could be impaired that, um, you know, you identify an ICD-10 for that's fitting. Okay. I just or thought that was not. really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was cool because I didn't even think of it as, I just assumed because they're an SLP, that wouldn't have even popped on my radar that there's a whole different ICD-10 code for this mm -hmm. until she showed them. And I was like, what? And then I was like super curious because I mean, it made me wonder, like, could you have like a ICD-10 um, or a facial myofunctional code as well as like an oral pharyngeal dysphagia yes. ICD code? Yes. You can? Yes. And unfortunately, I'm not at, um, 
I don't have immediate access to a medical software program that I can literally tell you what those are. But when you go to the certification courses, um, one part of the training does involve sharing that kind of information so that when the providers leave, they know what kinds of codes to fill under. Um, That's brilliant. That's those. Okay, folks, why am I chasing this? Because those are the details that like you wouldn't have thought would even fall within the wheelhouse of speech pathologists, that there's like this whole separate branch of ICD-10 codes. But what I do remember when she spoke was that you can't use an orofacial myofunctional ICD-10 code unless you were trained in it. And I was like, okay, that I can respect because otherwise I wouldn't have known how to code that. <laughs> so like, and that, again, not going to do it. Maybe one of the reasons that that information is shared within a certification course as opposed yeah. to it being public domain information. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So then what is, okay. So we have, we know what an orofacial myofunctional disorder, we have the anatomical breakdown, but what is an orofacial my, do, is it, it's orofacial myo, myologist or a facial? Okay. My, that is a essentially a therapist or a clinician who has received the training to address that kind of impairment or those kinds of impairments. So what is the right word? Okay. Oral, well, it's an, it's um, orofacial myologist. Orofacial my, Oh, I didn't butcher it too bad. Okay, cool. <laughs> And I'll just say that uh, I'll give you a little bit of background of how those terms um, or why we use those terms. I won't say how they arose, but why we use them. There are essentially two credentials um, that I'm aware of presently that um, signify that a person has received advanced training in evidence-based practices to render services for um, these types of disorders. Mm -hmm. The first is um, issued by the International Association of Oral Facial Myology, and that credential is the um, certified oral facial myologist. So you'll see individuals that have C-O-M after their name. Yes, I've seen that. And this is the, this is one that gave me pause, the, conver the, the conversation that we opened with. Okay. But you have a QOM. Right. And that's through a different organization, which by the way, I'm actually in the process of studying to receive um, or to pursue my COM. I won't say receive because pursuit doesn't automatically qualify for receipt, but yeah. I'm completing the um, the training and well, I've already completed the training, but the studying for the exam and everything that's required for the COM, the one that I already have is um, the qualified orofacial myologist. And that one is offered through um, their site is the orofacialmyology.com site. It's, hang on, it's, hang on. I'm orofacialmyology.com. Okay. I'm doing the Google. Can you tell? Okay. I apparently don't know how to spell. <laughs> or, or, all right. I pulled it up. It's all, uh, I think the, the um, web link would be all the words connected. So Yes. Or, okay. I found it. Okay. Okay. So one turns into the other. Is that kind of like the CLC versus the IBCLC? Like certified lactation is like a one-week intensive course and a board exam 
the international board certified lactation certificate well, is that plus 1500 hours of practicums. Well, no, one doesn't turn into the other. What hap- what happens is um, you can, as a practitioner, once you complete the 28 hour um, certification track course, you can pursue one or the other or both. They're, okay. they're both, um, again, engaged in evidence-based um, evaluation and treatment practices for oral facial myofunctional disorders. They're just basically two um, different organizations that offer the credentials that would enable a person to call themselves an oral facial myologist. Okay. If that makes sense. Yes. Oh, the first, the one that you just did, the orofacialmyology.com, that's, is that Susan Holtzman or Sandra Holtzman? Sandra, yes. Mm-hmm. She, I have met her a couple times. She is a passionate little lady. She ain't big as a minute and she is just a powerhouse. She's fabulous. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. So I really like her. Y'all, mm-hmm. Holtzman is spelt, um, hold on. H-O-L-T-Z-M-A-N. And if memory mm-hmm. serves correct, she's out of Florida. I think yes. she's out of Florida. Yeah. And I think she has some roots in North Carolina as well, but most of the courses or, or the nearest courses may be in Florida. I want to say, though, just in terms of um, clarifying, you can go to the certification course that her team offers, and that serves as um, the coursework that would enable you to pursue that International Association of Oral Facial Myologies, COM as well. So going going to the Holtzman course or her team's course would lead to, um, will qualify you for sitting for the QOM. However, you can then pursue the COM without having to go back for more coursework. There's just a different exam and other protocols that are a little different because there's a different organization that offers a different credential. Gotcha. Okay. And I also saw the price tag on them and now I remembered why it's on the to-do list. (laughs) (laughs) Because until both children are in full-time school and not preschool, that's not happening right Mm -hmm. now. Go team. (laughs) Okay. So I I want to say something as well, though, and obviously I'm um, by all means um, encouraging and endorsing Um, certifications and qualifications because we want to ensure that people who are rendering services are aware of best practices and following the evidence. However, Mm -hmm. I I will say that, you know, having been a speech language pathologist for going into my 26th year now, there still won't look like it. (laughs) Well, thank you. You're so kind. There are um, cases that where individuals have had myofunctional disorders and ASHA certified clinicians have been treating myofunctional disorders for years. So it's not, I don't want to give the impression that you have to have these credentials to do an effective job. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, again, we're all ethically bound to um, standards of rendering the best care. So the research is out there 
what may be a little more challenging for someone who has not um, attended one of these courses is, is perhaps figuring out, you know, um, well, accessing the research and ensuring that that you're actually following it or interpreting it because you're not within a body of individuals who sort of started that process for you. But again, people have been treating these disorders for years without certification credentials. Yeah. Part of me wonders if they've been treating it and not recognizing right. what it was. Right. And that's possible. Yeah. That's possible. But you, if yeah. you go, another source of information is, you know, the ASHA website, the American Speech Language Hearing Association. Um, they actually refer you in some of their links to these other organizations for additional information. But, you know, oh, that cool. the ASHA website is certainly a place to get started. And um, in some cases, yeah. it, it could be that, you know, necessity requires you to start something with a patient before you can get to a certification course. So that's another mm -hmm. benefit, again, of just accessing the information and literature that are out there and at least attempting to, um, to your best ability, employ the evidence. Yeah. I'm just wondering how many kids I've misdiagnosed. Sorry, that was a big long pause. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So then, all right. So then what causes, all right. So I have a theory and tell me if my theory is wrong. So okay. what causes orofacial myofunctional disorders, but I feel like a lot of it is underlying aerodigestive or aerodynamic issues that, because I feel like I see that all the time and which is why we send our favorite ENT. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it's the Grand Canyon, like the wind blowing through the tunnel and it causes one thing that leads to another thing that it's not just one factor, but it's multifactorial. And Am I wrong? No, you're, you're, <laughs> As the saying goes, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, think of it. I want to back up a little, though. If you think about um, an infant's development, when babies um, are taking a bottle or nipple, um, it's a normal um, primitive pattern, per se, that they exhibit the anterior to posterior tongue movement to, um, to feed. Because to express from the nipple, they're right. yeah, they're yeah. quote unquote stripping the nipple. That's right. how that's how my yeah. lactation person taught me. I'll right. never unhear that. And um, because of the dimensions of the oral cavity, honestly, their tongue is limited in terms of the the range of motion that it has. Um, you know, everything's small, it's compact, and it's again anterior to posterior really is about the, the range of movement that they have. What should happen though, as their oral cavity expands, as their, uh, their mouth and head grow, um, you should start to see other patterns of movement. So it, mm -hmm. it has been hypothesized that some individuals just retain the anterior to posterior tongue movement longer than they should in development. And, you know, if that isn't corrected, obviously an oral facial myofunctional disorder could arise. However, relating to um, what you are saying, if there is something that perhaps impedes movement, even when 
um, size is larger, for example, enlarged tonsils could restrict the space available for the base of the tongue um, to rest toward the pharynx and therefore that child ends up having an anterior, a relatively anterior resting posture of the tongue, literally because there's no space. They can't get it back. Right. Mm-hmm. That's yes. That um, bear had giant whopping tonsils, and he fronted mm-hmm. everything. He did that with his speech. That's why everything was a tootie because he couldn't get his tongue back because his mm-hmm. tonsils were like hockey pucks back there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another consideration is that you know even if the tonsils don't appear to be large, we can't see the adenoids, and it's very possible that some of the space back there is being taken up by the adenoids that we can't see. Um, Garner said when they laid, and y'all folks, I think I might've said this once or twice before in a prior episode, but when Garner did bear surgery, he said, yeah, they were, they were pretty big when you did like an oral mech exam, right? But they weren't ostentatiously enlarged. Mm-hmm. But when he laid down, mm-hmm. they almost completely occluded his airway from an AP perspective. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that I honestly, because I am mom, I couldn't think about that from a clinical perspective. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, well, that would explain why we had such severe obstructive sleep apnea scores yes. because, and, and you know, at the time they didn't do his adenoids at surgeries. I mean, they did subsequently also do his adenoids, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, but you have to remember anatomy changes yes. as the kid moves. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Exactly. And then also, um, I'll think of this as maybe a need for um, efficiency. If you see a child who is mouth breathing and who does have that anterior placement, perhaps they're doing that to open the airway because, as you Mm -hmm. said, other variables could be occluding um, the airway or reducing the function of the airway and they have to figure out a way to get more air in. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, it, like you said, they're related factors. So. Yeah, no, this is, this is hypertrophy of adenoid tissue. Um, I've seen, um, I've seen, I have a kid. Um, you didn't get this one. Um, folks, a lot of times I get the tiny humans to start with and then I'm like, okay, you don't need me anymore. You need Dr. Angela. <laughs> and then like they go, they exit the world of early intervention and I'm like, Dr. Angela, fix the tiny human. <laughs> like, um, I have one little girl that um, her adenoids were so enlarged, they were called pulling her UES open Mm -hmm. through negative pressure Mm -hmm. and pulling up her GERD contents, thereby exacerbating her laryngomalacia at baseline. Wow. And I will like, oh, that's, that's a new word. But like ever since then, whenever I hear like an audible snort when they're like sitting upright and I hear the same respiration patterns that I heard in that kid, I'm all like, so are you two tugging on your UES? And like I said that one time in front of a parent and they were like, what did you just say? And I was like, I'm so sorry. Let me translate out of my really weird brain. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So airway issues can cause orofacial myofunctional. Just what about, what about neurologic damage? Um, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay. Because again, if you think back to the 
I always say, if you're in doubt, refer to the mor mor morphology of the word. Myo is muscle, function is how it works. And so if there's neurologic injury that impedes muscle function, absolutely, there could be some problems with, with these okay. skills. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So then tongue thrusting, you touched on it earlier, but is that the same thing as? It's, well, it's related, but not entirely the same. Um, if you imagine the um, individual that we just described in terms of them not having space for the tongue to um, properly rest in the mouth, what they could, mm -hmm. because of all of these things that we talked about that might be influential um, to this occurring, they could um, essentially maintain their tongue in a more forward, habitual um, resting posture. And then mm -hmm. that could carry over into what they're doing when they are um, chewing and swallowing food. And so what happens there is essentially, again, in addition to there being an anterior resting posture, when they swallow, they protrude the tongue or push the tongue forward, whether it's liquids, whether it's solids. And over time, that alters um, the entire shape of the oral cavity. So that yeah, they their teeth buck forward. They get yeah. like, I mean, I don't want to be mean and say the horse face, but like those prolonged facial features. Yes, that's what I think of. Mm -hmm. And it could also obviously affect their uh, occlusion. You see various malocclusions. Um, bite. Uh, sorry, the the way the teeth bite together. Malocclusions. Yeah. So yeah. an an open bite, for example. Sometimes some of the kids, or and I say kids, but. If these um, disorders are not corrected in childhood, they can persist into adulthood. So although we try to identify them when individuals are young, it's very possible that a clinician will see adults on their caseload that have these difficulties because of problems that arose when they were younger but were never addressed. And, My, go ahead. And I was going to say another scenario of adults is that some individuals have gone for um, orthodontic treatment that was probably um, contributed to by an undiagnosed oral facial myofunctional disorder. So what do you think mm -hmm. happens when the um, orthodontic treatment is over, the braces are taken off? What do you think could happen? Their teeth go right back. Yes. And so I've yeah. I've actually seen individuals in therapy that have enrolled after what we call orthodontic relapse because there was no myofunctional therapy um, that preceded or occurred in conjunction with the orthodontic treatment. And so um, that's another situation where adults could receive this type of therapy. So my point is it's not always children. I Again, say children a lot because we identify them or try to identify them early, but this is not exclusive to to children. See, Matthew has it, my special needs brother-in-law. Like mm -hmm. you can tell he's still doing tongue thrusting, but mm -hmm. they can't remove his adenoids. And we know he has hypertrophy of his adenoid tissues because he doesn't do well under anesthesia. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like he's, it's functional. He's mm -hmm. 42 years old and we're not gonna oh my gosh he's 43 shame on me mm -hmm. so like we're just gonna like let it ride but like I was kind of wonder what if you know like what if we've gotten 
what if we got him to a different therapist earlier? <laughs> like, right. Hmm. <laughs> the second opinion factor. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, and I'm thinking of a little girl that I saw like two summers ago and I was like, get him to Gardner. And I got the kiddo to Gardner. And like, as soon as I got the kiddo to Gardner and they did the sleep study and the anoidectomy, it dramatically improved. But she was tongue thrusting at like 10, but she had all of these other concomitant etiologies, such as like autism spectrum disorders. Yes. And it was like, what is the most what is the most ideal outcome to help her when given those comorbidities, we couldn't do as much right. as we wanted. So like we did that couple of diet change recommendations for like cut presentations and then just left it. But I mean, that was what was good for her stars, you know, but oh, you're still making me wonder that, um, that scenario or situation you just described reminded me of something I want to say. Um, mm -hmm. if a client is enrolled in this type of therapy, um, there are, um, expectations in terms of the client's ability to follow instructions, to, um, carry out Participate. exercises and also to follow through with home program activities because these type changing these skills, um, will not occur only or as a result of only doing them when they're in the therapist's presence. They're literally having to take information home and integrate it into their, their environment. And so, you know, when you talk about candidacy for um, certain types of interventions, that's something mm -hmm. that every clinician will need to assess. Not every person who has this type of disorder is particularly going to be um, a candidate for the types of training that might be needed to essentially retrain the oral um, mechanism, oral facial myofunctional skills. But you may have to um, implement some other measures, as you said, changing the diet, doing parent training, doing whatever it takes for them to have the safest type of swallow or the most functional feeding skills, despite the presence of any difficulties that are there. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. And I didn't know that. So mm -hmm. that's good to know. I didn't. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I, I, I also thought of one other thing I wanted to mention that stems um, or relates to the question you asked earlier about the phrenectomy. Yeah. I, I saw a little boy um, who in, you know, he had all signs and symptoms of a myofunctional disorder and clearly there were some airway issues, but he also had a visually and a functionally restricted frenulum. Um, mm -hmm. And so I referred to the ENT for consult to um, assess, have his airway assessed because obviously that's not in our scope. So mm -hmm. uh, having the airway assessed and then also seeing about his candidacy for having a phrenectomy, it turns mm -hmm. out that he was a little boy who um, visually when you looked in, into his mouth, you could not, his, his tonsils looked fine. But when they did a scope, they identified huge, huge adenoids. And oh. the report, oh. that, the report that I got from the ENT was that because of his airway being so compromised because of the size of the adenoids, a phrenectomy in that child would have placed him at risk of an even further compromised 
airway. In other words, the fact that he had a restricted frenulum was protecting his airway. And if someone hadn't assessed the airway and just jumped into, um, based on the visual appearance of the frenulum, to release it, it could have been detrimental to his health. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Our sweet friend Leslie um, down at MUSC had that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Two kids twice within, I think it was like a really short period, like maybe even eight weeks. And um, two kids went to a dentist and had um, a phrenectomy without having an airway evaluation done first. Mm -hmm. Both kids ended up having to have treaks. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. It, it was, yeah. And they were like, there was so much other stuff going on with the airway mm-hmm. and it was the, their lingual frenulum was holding, anchoring the tongue in place. And the second they let that sucker loose, it completely occluded the airway and what they were able to move air through had previously been stopped. Wow. And I just, and y'all, I know we're talking about in- extremes, but do go back to that one research article that's now completely eclipsed my mind that we referenced where they said that there were cases that where it was absolutely necessary. Right. And there's more cases where I think it was like 66% that it was not 15% where it was counterindicated. Mm-hmm. And then like whatever the percent was like 10 or 15 where it was. Right. So, um, yeah, but I mean, again, yes, but see that's, but that's why we have a holistic team yes. because when you utilize interprofessional practice, which we are like, that is paramount to our profession. Don't be a silo SLP utilize interprofessional practice. Then you find those things out. Right. Oh, my stars. Okay. Yes. Okay. So then that gets me to. All right. So I have so many. Oh, my God. You're coming back for part two, right? Because like <laughs> we're well, not going to cover all this in an hour. If you will have me, I'll be delighted to return. <laughs> yes. Okay, folks, what y'all don't know is behind the scenes, I always say to people, give me like maybe three or four questions for me to ask you so that we can like, you know, build it. And Dr. Angela sent me 13. And I was like, <laughs> not that she is too a type A SLP, but you know, it's cool like that. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to get all this in one hour because uh, my ADD will kick in with all the squirrels. <laughs> okay, so then, um, what is how does orofacial myofunctional disorders relate to oral are they are they the same as oral motor difficulties or are those like two different things i don't even like to use the term oral motor difficulties i gotta be honest i am hesitant of that term even so and hey here's the thing i think it again refers to where you're reading about the literature you you know you've been in our field long enough to hear about you know the controversy of um, implementing oral motor exercises to non-speech uh, oral motor exercises, right, just right. say no. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're not intended to be the same because here we're with the oral facial myofunctional disorders. We've identified via, via scientific investigation that there are authentic um, difficulties with facial musculature, um, perhaps skeletal growth, um, just the various, various um, aspects of the client's anatomy and function. Whereas in a broader sense, oral motor could refer to just range of motion exercises or tasks without linking them to known organic variables. So, Okay. So 
translation mm-hmm. um, because <laughs> Dr. Angela is used to used to teaching all the the younger ladies and also I know like they love you every student I've ever had they're like oh my god we love her she's a goddess and I'm like I know right (laughs) so like but like I am not as PC (laughs) because I don't torture the tiny humans and masses um but the non-speech oral motor exercises stick your tongue out touch your nose stick your tongue out move it to the right 18 times and then move it to the left 18 times neuroplasticity we don't learn that way right and then and, but, and, and yeah. those those things that you just described are typically what are meant when the term oral motor exercises is used when that term is mm-hmm. used those types of things and you know by definition those could be anything that they aren't particularly linked to a, a function but they're supposed to influence development of of speech um, so they could be, um, as you said, sticking out the tongue, elevating, um, rounding the lips, holding air in the cheeks, but there isn't enough. Blowing through straws. That's yeah. one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Doing the straw therapy. Cause I got asked one time, right. well, don't you do the straw therapy and blowing through whistles? And I was like, no, <laughs> I do not. Now there, the thing is they're, they're, um, purported to, purported to influence, um, tongue, movements of the tongue and um, the lips um, to alter strength, to improve muscle tone, etc. But, you know, there isn't evidence to say that. Mm-hmm. 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 We, Aaron and I have covered this in, in copious volumes because we're mm-hmm. really strongly about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then... Um, if you're going in and doing your eval, um, and you and you sent a PDF with this, is that um, um, can I like link that somehow or like add that as a picture on Instagram? Well, that would that not, be that's not really an eval form, but that that actually is out there in the public domain. The reason awesome. I shared it with you is because it has literally almost everything that you might see if you suspect a person of having. Um, an oral facial myofunctional disorder. It's all together in one handy sheet. But that was those. Are, those are the signs and symptoms. You mean right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. But and the thing is that not everything on there is particularly going to be going on with every client that you see. Like in other words, a client may only exhibit one or two of those characteristics, but they still would be considered to have or could be considered to have an oral facial myofunctional disorder. You might have one client with two of those things. You might have another client with seven of those things. You might have a different client with 20 of those things, but oh, good Lord. they're just sort like of, um, think of it as a checklist of things to look for that would put you on high alert that an oral facial myofunctional disorder could be present. And, um, you know, it's not my, my checklist. It, actually was um, downloaded from the AMOT, which is, I think, the Academy of Oral Facial and Myofunctional Therapists. Now, to my knowledge, there isn't a um, credential that comes from that organization. I, I don't want to misspeak, but I'm not aware of any other credential than the ones I mentioned to you earlier. But I, I definitely like this checklist because it is pretty comprehensive. Oh, yeah, I found it. Okay. Okay. 
Academy of Orofacial Myofunctional Therapy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's right, it's right on there. Okay. 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 Screening tools and booklets. Mm-hmm. Yes. Intro course. Yes. Okay. So they have a ton of stuff too. Oh, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they have a whole lot of courses that are live. I feel like those live courses are probably not happening right now, given the state of things. Right. So like, right. Yeah, just putting that thought out there because I don't feel like you can social distance while doing an oral mech exam. Oh, you absolutely <laughs> cannot. You know, the, the course that I went to was um, very intensive. Again, it was 28 hours. And we were. Was it like over five days? It was over three days, but we were sort of in um, quarantine before we realized we had to be. <laughs> but we were, um, we were literally in. A room from about seven in the morning until about six in the afternoon for three consecutive days. So, did, good God, what did I mean? Did, did you have homework afterwards? We would just um, have to do um, practical exams in the class, like we would um, get in groups or pairs and basically run through the procedures with the instructors walking around and giving us corrective feedback. So, and then we took tests while we were there before the like at the end of the day say between four and six or five and six is when we would take the written part but all the practical things were done during the day yeah my brain just hurt by your description thank you Mm -hmm. (laughs) so so helpful yeah but that's the i i love hands-on classes like that um okay all right i'm looking at our time okay so we have a source for signs and symptoms. So what are your, what are your, what are the, if you could give us like the top five signs and symptoms, what are the things that you see the most that you think, okay, well, that's a red flag. Well, um, maybe one of the more obvious is breathing through the mouth um, versus breathing through the nose. A person should not habitually mouth breathe when they're healthy. Now a person who has a cold or you know, an upper respiratory infection temporarily may mouth breathe again, just to get more air in. But I'm sure you've seen children who do it all the time, like all seasons, and it could be allergy related. So um, in that case, there's still potential for the airway to be compromised. And that's why they're doing that. So that's, that's a red flag. Um, Having a habitual open mouth, um, like when they're resting, you know, just mm-hmm. looking at them and, you know, th- their lips should be sealed and they should be breathing through their nose if they're, if everything is working as it should. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then obviously you might observe um, when they're drinking or eating food. We talked about that tongue thrust behavior where mm-hmm. the tongue moves anteriorly. Sometimes they will actually protrude the tongue to greet a cup when they're drinking or they push material out of the mouth when they're chewing. Um, I've seen individuals actually lose material from the mouth. Okay. Hold on one second. I just want to, folks, we're not talking about emergent feeders here. Right. Like if you're six to nine months old developmentally and you're doing that, like, right. I still Mm -hmm. chuck that up too. That's the normal process of learning to eat. Yes. But like when you're older, like for me, when you're developmentally between 10 and 12 months, I start having concerns that we're seeing what I would label as an unintegrated tongue, um, tongue protrusion reflex, which has turned into tongue thrusting, which 
you weren't kidding. I've got to do this. I've mm-hmm. got bloody hell, but it's like all the monies. So we're going to have to like start saving pennies up. Angela, this is mm-hmm. really cool. Okay. Yes. All right. But yes. So just to clarify, it's not the emergent eaters. Okay. So some, I'm sorry, squirrel. Some other things that you want to be um, vigilant about are um, what I'll call oral habits. So a, a person or who has maybe retained usage of a pacifier for an extended period, um, sucking on their finger or thumb. I've actually even seen children who suck their tongue. Like it's not apparent um, maybe immediately, but if you spend a few minutes with them, you could actually observe like the lip movements that indicate that there's sucking going on behind closed lips. So uh-huh. um, nail biting, um, chewing. Wait, on- nail biting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what happens is if a person has exhibited long-term nail biting, there's something in the front of the mouth that's altering where the habitual placement of the tongue is. And over time, that could contribute to their, what they're, basically, they develop a different tongue resting posture. Um, so it could actually impact oral, oral facial myofunctional skills. That's crazy. I, I'm, I've had a couple kids that sucked. Somehow or another, they would put their thumb on the side of their jaw, almost mm-hmm. as if they're like stabilizing it, mm-hmm. and then like suck their index finger and their middle fingers to the point that like if that had been me and my fingers were back that far, I would have upchucked. Like there would be a significant amount of emesis that just graced the floor. But they would suck in that way, and I've seen it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was and those front teeth because I mean. To get your hand in there, I mean, they're going almost all the way to their knuckles. Like those right. front teeth would be so bowed right. out. And yeah. that's, that's the other thing I was going to mention. Just again, malocclusions. And, you know, one of the most apparent is that open bite. It literally looks like, you know, something has been um, positioned in between the upper and lower teeth for some period of time such that there's an opening. Like it mm-hmm. literally looks like there's just enough space for the tip of the tongue or mm-hmm. a or a digit, um, one of the fingers, but some individuals who um, exhibit malocclusions, well, I'm sorry, some individuals can exhibit malocclusions that aren't an open bite. So an an open, I'm sorry, uh, an overbite, an overjet, as you mentioned, you called it, I think, buck teeth, Um, Mm -hmm. even a crossbite. I've actually seen clients who have a what I'll call a bilateral open bite because they're chewing on the sides of the tongue. I mean, so there, there are all kinds of things that could be. Wait, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a, a picture for a bilateral open bite. So like their molars don't reach down on the sides because yeah. they're, oh, mm-hmm. how are you going to chew your food? Well, I bet they're anterior chewers then on food. Probably. Yep. And again, that, you know, we didn't talk in this, um, conversation about the evaluation procedure. So if you do have me come back, maybe we could talk some about it then. But the evaluation that you complete would actually have you investigate in addition to a very intensive oral mechanism exam, you would investigate how they are chewing and swallowing with various food textures. And then perhaps that would be discovered, you know, in that part of an assessment. 
And so then let, let's do that one next time. Let's do how you do an eval and what treatment looks like. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah. For, for the next one. Okay. Because. But um, oh, there's so many signs and symptoms. Yeah, exactly. And so I think you said earlier that there are probably a number of clients that you've worked with who could have some underlying oral facial myofunctional difficulties that haven't been identified. And that's why you're seeing so much of what you do in the feeding and swallowing therapy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So who, who do you refer to? Like as an orofacial myologist, mm -hmm. like when you see these kiddos, who are your top collaborative professionals to treat? Because a lot of what you're describing sounds like the underlying issues are outside mm -hmm. of the wheelhouse of the SLP. Well, so, I actually, again, I'm, you know, I'm because of COVID-19, I'm working out of the office, but at my regular office, I have a list of um, allergists and ENTs in the area, as well as a couple of dentists that I've worked okay. with and um, one periodontist. And then um, there aren't, as far as other SLPs, there aren't um, many in our geographic region who have either the um, certified oral facial myologist credential or the qualified oral facial myologist credential. But that um, oralfacialmyology.com link that you pulled up earlier lists clinicians by geographic region and so mm -hmm. if, if there were a concerned clinician um they could look at that um that website and find someone if you know again if they were wanting to refer to a specialist i love that y'all that it's also encouraged to have interprofessional oh yeah it, it's all about ipe this is not something that can be thoroughly and accurately completed by just an individual practitioner. Okay. So can, is it only SLPs that get their QOM or COM or can other disciplines get that certification? That's a good question because it's something I forgot to mention. Um, you don't have to be an SLP. You can be a registered dental hygienist. You could be a dentist. You could be an orthodontist. Um, I think for the, the Holtzman course that you mentioned um, earlier, when a person who is a professional from the dental community gets theirs, they still get the QOM, but I think there may be a, a signifier that indicates that the person has a dental background versus an SLP background. Again, I'm not looking at the site, so don't quote me on that, but I remember seeing that. So. But the, the point is they, they have still gone through the, the same training. It's just that the um, pre-course training is different because of the disciplines that in which they, you know, that they chose to pursue. So. Oh, no, that's, I love that. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to hold us there. Hold on one second. Um, and highlight where on our questions we did not get. Um, <laughs> cause you sent me 13. Oh my God. I love you so much. And, uh, and after uh, this talk, I may have to send you some more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, honey, this is, but this is so fascinating to me because it's, you're finally connecting pieces that like, I, 
Um, we made it to we made it to question number seven. How about that on, on that you sent me? Okay. Um, so we'll have to. Okay. All right. So then, yeah, Lord Almighty, I got so many more. So before we switch to questions, is there anything else you want to get in on just describing what it is and what it's not? Well, I um, I feel like I've talked a whole lot. I. I'm not sure that I want to add any more except, you know, again, visit those um, links or those sites that we talked about, the ASHA mm -hmm. website, the IAOM website, and the oralfacialmyology.com website, because I mm -hmm. think looking at the information that's out there and then listening to this kind of discussion will help people to make some connections because it's, it's really um, a very broad field per se. It, it's specialized. But there's so many different components that need to be looked at. So that's why I say it's also broad. Yeah. No, I, I get that. Okay. All right. So um, if someone has a question directly for you, mm -hmm. um, would you be willing to share your, your email so that sure. they can reach out to you? Sure. Okay. It is. I'll spell it. It's M, C as in cat, L as in Larry, E as in Edward, O, D as in Daniel. A N as in Nancy, so that's McLeod A N at mailbox dot S is in Sam C is in cat dot edu. So McLeod A N at mailbox dot SC dot edu. Okay, now I just want to know because you're like just part of USC because you that's when I think of the people at USC, you're always part of that. Have you always been at USC? No, I um I started there part time. I think is probably two thousand and two, teaching uh -huh. as an adjunct. Uh -huh. Two thousand two or two thousand three, I became a full time faculty member in two thousand seven as a clinical assistant professor. Um, however, in my work prior to USC. I worked in um, a hospital. I worked in a rehab center. I worked in home health. Um, I worked in a public school. I was a baby net um, early intervention therapist. There, yay! <laughs> um, I did a little Head Start. Um, I'm trying to think. I I'll just say this: probably every I did skilled nursing facility. Yes, probably every facility or every setting that SLPs can work in. Um, uh -huh. I worked in and just to clear or set the record straight, I didn't jo job like hop from one job to the next. I didn't do that. What happened is I, I worked primarily in a rural community. So uh -huh. there was always a shortage of SLPs. And so some, everyone knew everyone. And so if I were the hospital therapist, then the skilled nursing facility knew about me. And so the census at skilled nursing facilities was always small enough that I, you know, could go in and see one or two patients and then still, does that make sense? So in other words, yeah. it was, wasn't like I, you know, worked for two years there, this place, and then worked for a year, another place, and then worked for another year. I was very stable with where I was, but it's just that um, the community. It's and, rural. Yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up in the country. I was the only SLP at a rural hospital, and I did inpatient in the morning and outpatient in the afternoon and covered 
two to 99. Yeah. Well, actually, the oldest was 103, and he was very spry. That's the best adjective for him, was spry. He let me drive his sports car. And then, like, a couple of weeks later, they took his keys. But, like, oh, that wow. was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Small town living, baby. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Hold on. I love you. Hold on one second, and let me switch this over to questions, okay? Okay. Okay. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.